Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill. My name is Scott Powell, and today I am one half of the Lanky Guys. Fortunately, Father Peter is not going to be with us today. It is graduation time in the city of Boulder, Colorado, and all the students are getting ready to uh, head out of here. A lot of our seniors from the University of Colorado and the St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Center are on their way to graduate and do all sorts of other things. So, Father, People's not, Father Peter is not able to be with us today, but you're stuck with me for uh, a little while. Um, we'll probably get in fewer tangents today because, again, I'm flying solo. Um, but we're going to be diving into the readings for the Ascension of the Lord, which is also kind of the seventh Sunday of Easter. We have one more um, week, and then we'll be in Pentecost, and then it'll kind of launch us into the next season of the church. A little bit of uh, laundry or <laughs> nuts and bolts to kind of get out of the way. Um, we do have a shout-out coming from Travis Chapman. I want to give a shout-out to Natalie. He would like to give a shout-out to Natalie Miller. Um, and he wants you to know that your graduation is going to be the next step to being too awesome to handle. So that's pretty good. I don't know how awesome you are now, but apparently you're going to be too awesome to handle very soon, if if not already by the time you're listening to it, because graduation's already going on. So there you go. Uh, Travis, um, Natalie Miller, you're awesome, and you're going to be even more awesome. One other thing, we got a, an email a couple weeks ago from uh, Jesse Weiler out in Chicago, and he had a he raised a really, really good question. A couple podcasts ago, we were dealing in these readings with in John's Gospel, in which uh, John is talking about the relationship of Jesus with the Jews. Um, Paul talks and uses this language as well. It shows up in Acts of the Apostles. And the question was, you know, when, when Paul uses the term Jew, is he... Is he referring just strictly to the leaders of the religion and not the general populace or, or kind of what's going on here? So the ultimate question that Jesse gave was, would Paul really consider himself a Jew still, even though he was a believer in Jesus Christ? Um, and the answer is fundamentally yes. This is one of the things we miss sometimes as Christians and as Catholics. But for Paul, and I'm convinced of this 100% completely, that for Paul there was no separation. There's no firm separation between the Israel of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. So he, you know, and, and remember, this is before definitions. Christian is going to come out. It, it'll show up in Acts of the Apostles. They're first called Christian in Antioch. But before they kind of take on that name, they, they call themselves followers of the way. And I think the way that the early church sees themselves, I think the way Paul sees himself, is simply as a Jew who has been waiting for the Messiah, and now the Jewish Messiah has come. So he continues to be a Jew who is now believing in, the, in this Messiah, who has done this thing of extending the covenant family out to the non-Jews, out to the goyim, to the rest of the earth. So I think fundamentally, 100%, Paul still considers himself a Jew, and he sees no reason for a firm break between his Jewishness and his now Christianity. He sees them as one and the same, and he'll later kind of talk uh, in, in the book of Romans about Jews who fall out of the family of God, be or fall out of the covenant family in a strict sense, because of their their non-belief in Jesus Christ, their non-belief in the Messiah. And he says that's much more problematic. It's much easier for God to graft people into the family of Israel. Uh, and it's more tragic to see family members drop out of the family of Israel or cut themselves off of the tree, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, Paul certainly considers himself Jewish. You know, even when we see these things show up in the New Testament, remember, Jesus was Jewish. Mary was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. This is fundamentally a Jewish reality. Um, and remember, the church continued that way for a long time, but it was always meant to go out to the ends of the earth. So that's that's kind of what it's up to. So, Jesse, that's a really good question. I hope that uh, answer made some sense. Um, and yeah, that's that. So let's see, that's all of our shout outs. Um, Avery Balsinger, I want to give a shout out to her and I want her to know that I am not drinking a cup of lovely Father Peter espresso today. 
And uh, so just rest assured, I know you're listening to this before you've had your morning cup of coffee for the day. So don't worry, I haven't drank mine yet either, even though it is three o'clock in the afternoon. But I'm not, I'm not drinking the good stuff. So don't worry, Avery, everything's cool. All right. Well, fair enough. I want to jump into the readings for this week, which are great. This is weird, by the way, not being able to. I'm, I'm staring at Father Peter's chair and his empty microphone, and I'm not able to make fun of him or, or laugh at him or give him uh, Socratic questions. But that's okay. I'll stare at his chair, and I'll, I'll pretend he's there. But our, our readings this week are really, really cool. Again, the ascension of the Lord. There, there's two options that um, pastors can choose as they do this feast. Either there, there's different readings for the seventh Sunday of Ordinary Time, or of, of Easter, rather, and of the Ascension. So we're going to talk about the readings from the Ascension of the Lord because it's such a big deal of a feast. And we continue on in our reading of Acts of the Apostles. So this week, um, in the readings for the Ascension, we get a reading from Acts of the Apostles, our first reading. It comes from the very, very beginning of Acts, really the first 11 verses. And I just want to read the first couple lines. It says this, In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day that he was given up. Uh, until the day that he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit and the apostles that he had chosen. Theophilus is this sort of mysterious figure who both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are written to. And historically, I mean, if we're going to understand Acts of the Apostles, we have to see it as volume two of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke the Apostle wrote two volumes of this work. Volume one was the Gospel of Luke, when she talked about all that Jesus kind of did and taught. And then Acts of the Apostles, which is all about what the church then continues to do. And what we've said over the last few weeks is that if you read Acts of the Apostles, and if you read it in parallel with the Gospels, all the things that Jesus did in the Gospels, you now see the apostles and the disciples doing in Acts of the Apostles. And in some translations of this first line of Acts, it says, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I think that's a more accurate translation to the original Greek. And what that suggests is that the gospel is all about what Jesus began to do. Acts of the Apostles is what Jesus is continuing to do, but now through his church. So kind of in a different light, which is, it's a cool way to look at it. Um, But what we get here in the first reading is actually an insight into the actual ascension of the Lord. What happened here? So here's what, here's what Luke says. Um, after he was after he had given instructions to the, uh, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after by many proofs. After he had suffered, he appeared to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, about which you heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is, what Luke is doing, kind of giving a recap. So if you're reading this for the first time, what what you're hearing here is, you know, at the beginning of, of TV shows, sometimes they'll say, you know, last week on Lost. This is what happened. That's kind of what Luke is doing here in Acts of the Apostles. Last week in Jesus and Friends, here's what Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's kind of giving, he's catching you up into the story. So this is what we read about in Acts of the Apostles. He's caught you up now. He's like, yeah, I remember how Jesus appeared to the, the disciples and he showed himself and all these proofs after he had suffered. And he said you were going to receive the Holy Spirit. So this, this new dimension of baptism is going to hit. It's not a different baptism. John's baptism was one thing, but that was a symbolic baptism. Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you in a new way, and it's going to involve the Holy Spirit in a a profound way that nobody ever expected before. 
And then it says, when they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I love this question. You know, the, the idea of the kingdom is the most often repeated term or idea in all of the gospels. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom. He's tra- constantly establishing it. The disciples rarely really understand what he's talking about. They're, they're usually totally clueless. They're expecting a big king with a palace sitting on a throne with gold and with chariots, and they want gold as well and crowns and all this stuff. And you see now, even after the resurrection, they're still talking about it. They're still wondering, okay, now, now is the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus gives this answer. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has established by his own authority. So in other words, he says, none of your business. Are you going to establish the kingdom? Is this finally the time Jesus says, don't worry about it. Just, just go and do the job. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So first of all, you get this sense that even if the disciples have not quite understood what Jesus has been up to throughout the gospels, Jesus kind of gives the solution that soon you will, you're going to understand soon. You're going to be given the Holy Spirit and it's just kind of going to change everything. It's going to change your outlook. Jesus knows um, that eventually they're going to get it. So he's not too worried about their sort of cluelessness throughout the gospels. But listen to what he says. So he says, here's the job that you have to do. You're going to go out to the ends of the earth, but listen to how he says to do it. Cause I think there's a really neat insight into the idea of preaching the gospel, the idea of evangelization here. Here's what he says. You'll receive the Holy spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. By the way, witness, it's the Greek word martyria is where we get the word martyr. So <laughs> literally he's saying, you're going to be my martyrs in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now the word martyr literally means to give witness to, but now in hindsight, we kind of have a, a, a nuanced meaning of that word. Someone who's actually going to die for the faith. They're going to do both. All the apostles except John will actually die and be martyred for the faith. So that has a kind of a double meaning. So you're going to be my witnesses, my martyria in Jerusalem and throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, here's the insight here. He gives sort of a three-part uh, schema to how the gospel is supposed to go out to the rest of the world. That, that's the goal. The gospel is going to go out to the ends of the earth. But how is it going to get there? And these three geographic areas. So he says, first, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's area one. Then number two, throughout Judea and Samaria. That's area number two. And then to the ends of the earth. That's area number three. And you can actually split the whole book of Acts of the Apostles on those three geographic areas. The first part of Acts is their witness in Jerusalem. The second part is their witness in Judea and Samaria. And the third part of the book is as they go out to the ends of the earth and they go out to all the Gentiles. So it's kind of interesting, but but think about that for a second. The way that Jesus is calling them to go out to the world with the gospel. First, he says, go to Jerusalem. Well, what sort of people live in Jerusalem? Well, Jews live in Jerusalem, right? But what kind of Jews? Well, in Jerusalem, that's where you have sort of the the leadership of Judaism. That's where you have the priests, where you have the authorities, the teachers, the ones who sort of govern and rule and teach all of Israel. They live in Jerusalem. So he says, go there first, go to the teachers, go to the priests. They're the first ones that should get this message, which actually makes sense, doesn't it? And then he says, after you do that, go to Judea. Now, who lives in Judea? Well, Judea is sort of all the surrounding area in the southern kingdom uh, around Jerusalem. So the people who live in Judea are kind of the rest of the Jewish people, or at least many of them, just sort of everyday average folks, but they're Jewish. They live in Judea. It's the Jewish region, but it's sort of everybody else. So he says, first go to the leadership, first go to the priests, the teachers, then go out to all the rest of the faithful Jews around Judea. Then go to Samaria. Now who lives in Samaria? 
Samaritans, right? Trick question. Well, no, who are the Samaritans, though? I'm waiting for Father Peter to make a crack, but he's not going to. But who are the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans, if you know the history of Israel, the Samaritans were basically uh, part of what was called the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, which way back in the Old Testament had a civil war with the southern tribes, and they split off, and they basically founded their own kingdom. Well, that northern kingdom in the year 722 BC, way back, was wiped out by a nation called Assyria. And they kind of scattered everybody and killed everybody else. And they forced the Israelites to intermarry with other nations and everything else. So the ones that are living in Samaria in Jesus's time are basically the remnant of those other 10 tribes, the rest of Israel who had split apart, who had founded their own kingdom, who had set up their own temples, uh, the, the fallen away brothers and sisters. That's who lives in Samaria. That's why, you know, if you've ever read the Gospels, there's this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. They don't like each other. Why? Because there's a pretty sordid family history between the two. So there's a reason they don't like them. So he says, then go to Samaria, which is really their fallen away brothers and sisters from the Israelite faith. And then last, go out to the ends of the earth, to everybody else. But I think it's kind of fascinating the way that Jesus actually establishes that. Because think about it. How do you translate this into Catholic or Christian point of view? Well, who are we supposed to, if we're supposed to evangelize, you know, John Paul II and Benedict after him, and I'm sure Pope Francis will soon, but even Paul VI, the way before that, they all talked about this thing called the new evangelization. And many of you have probably heard that term. But the question always comes up, well, what exactly is new about the new evangelization? You know, evangelization is not new. Jesus was telling us to do that from the beginning. It's not that sin is really new. I mean, I know we have a messed up world and a really whacked out culture, but that's not a new thing either. I mean, we've always been sinning. We just have new ways to do it now. But what John Paul II really, really dug out and Paul VI before him, what this, what's new about the new evangelization is that for the first time in Christian history, if you go back a couple decades, we have this population of Catholics, of Christians, who have been baptized. They've entered into the covenant family of God, but they actually have no idea what that means, or they don't care, or they have a misunderstanding about what that means. And so what the Pope said is new about the new evangelization in our day and age is that, again, for the first time, you have baptized Catholics who have no clue what it means to be a baptized Catholic. And that's totally new. That's totally uh, unprecedented. So what's the new evangelization? Basically to teach Catholics what it means to be wedded to the church, what it means to be uh, a son or daughter of Jesus Christ in a fundamental sacramental way. Because... Most of us don't know what that means. So we have to reteach the faith with new methods and ardor and zeal and everything else that the popes talk about. So think about it from that point of view and take Jesus's schema here. So who should we go with the gospel first? Well, the first thing we should do as Catholics is sort of try to revive our churches. We should be producing good priests out of the seminaries, our bishops, you know, the bishops, the priests, the teachers, the deacons, the people who are teaching RE, you know, the DREs and the parishes. They're the ones that we should be able to catch fire with the gospel with. They should be won over to this. First and foremost, it has to start there because it's all going to trickle down. So first Jerusalem, that's sort of the teachers, the priests, the bishops in our church. They need to be won over to this first. And then Judea, well, who are the modern day Judeans? Well, in a certain sense, in this analogy that we're kind of working on, it's the average everyday Catholics, the people who are showing up to Mass on Sunday. The whoever of you are actually listening to this podcast called the Lanky Guys, heaven forbid. But I mean, we all, the rest of us, sort of the Joe Schmoes, we need to be evangelized. We need to catch fire for the faith and figure out what this all means in our lives. And then 
He says, go out to the Samaritans. Well, who are the Samaritans? Well, remember, in, in the first century, the Samaritans were the people who were a part of the faith, but had broken away and had formed their own churches and everything else. And to that, I, I look at our Protestant brothers and sisters, the Orthodox, the Protestants, things like this, our fallen away, our broken away brethren. We should go to them next. That makes sense. And then once the sort of Christian house is in order, at least we've made an attempt at it, then we go out to the rest of the world. You know, it's funny. I mean, when the world looks at the church, what they what they see is not, you know, this beautiful family of God that everybody desperately wants to be a part of with people who are joy-filled and loving one another. What they see is a bunch of people who seem to hate each other, who spread our dirty laundry all over the newspapers and make fun of each other and mock one another and just can't stand each other. What they don't see is a church who's united in their belief, who love one another, and who are coming as a united front to a world that is pretty vicious and pretty ugly. But imagine what it would be like if the world saw a church united. That's actually what they saw in the first century, and that's frankly why the Roman Empire was converted to Christianity, because they saw a united front of people who loved one another, who were willing to die for their faith, to die for one another, and that was just too appealing to pass up. And I wonder if we could ever get there again. It's, it's kind of a fascinating idea. So take that for what you will. So Jesus gives them the game plan. This is what you ought to do. And then it says, when he said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. And while they were looking intently at the sky, they're staring up uh, as he was going. Suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you saw him going into heaven which is really good news for us waiting for the second coming. If you want to know what the second coming is going to be like, well, these angels say, remember the ascension. It's going to be like that. He's going to come back in the same way that he left, descending on the clouds. So they actually witness this. They see him going up, and all of a sudden there's two angels again. Remember, there's a, 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 Scripture likes to rhyme with itself, right? There were two angels guarding the tomb in the garden when the witnesses came and saw the empty tomb. Maybe they're the same angels, but God tends to work in the same way. I remember Father Peter brought this up a couple of weeks ago. Um, just as there were two angels at the tomb announcing the resurrection, we're reminded of the two angels that were in the Garden of Eden blocking the way, the seraphim with their, with their swords, right? God always kind of uses the same image. Two angels guarded the Garden of Eden when we were kicked out of it. Two angels in another garden are announcing that Christ is risen, and now two angels are telling the disciples about how he has risen into heaven and will come back. So it all rhymes with itself. So it's, it's really cool. And that reading, that's sort of the historical look at exactly what happened, which is the reading that's going to inform all of the rest of them. Sort of, if we're thinking about this in terms of the ascension, we need the narrative uh, and then we can kind of see what else is going on. So that takes us into, into the psalm. And the psalm this week, it's psalm number 47. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I actually worked up I looked back at, well, and this is going to sound nerdy, but I was reading the, the psalm, and the psalm, the responsorial psalm that we get is, God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets to the Lord. And then it goes on to say, all you people, clap your hands, shout with God, uh, shout to God with cries of gladness, for the Lord the Most High is awesome, he's a great king over all the earth, etc., etc. And I was reading that line, I kept rereading it, God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets for the Lord. So I went back to the Psalms to try to find out, okay, what exactly does this have to do with the ascension? And nerdily enough, I actually looked at it in the, in the Greek, the Septuagint version of the Greek, which Jesus would have been reading. And what I think the Greek says most, uh, most explicitly is um, God ascends to his throne with shouts of joy. 
God ascends. So here in the Psalms, way before Jesus is, is, is ever incarnate, before he's even born, there's this Psalm, which is looking toward the future, talking about God ascending, God's ascension. Where is he ascending to? He's ascending to his throne amidst shouts of joy and blares of trumpets. And that's why all the peoples are clapping their hands and shouting to the Lord with cries of gladness. So the Psalm is actually predicting, foretelling, imagining what it's going to be like when God actually does ascend, which is cool. And we're going to come back to this in a second. But um, this psalm, I think, fundamentally is looking forward. It's kind of an eschatological psalm, looking toward the future, what's going to happen. But I'm trying to, I was trying to think, well, you know, what, what's the context here? And what would the Jewish people be thinking about when they read this or, or when whoever wrote it wrote it? And I think what you'd be thinking of if you're a first century Jew was David taking the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy City. I think there's kind of a figure, there's kind of a type here. Remember when uh, they finally captured Jerusalem and they set it up as the capital. David came into the holy city with the tabernacle, which is what they believed where the, the presence of God was. And when they brought the tabernacle into the holy city, Jerusalem, the capital, and they set it upon its throne, David, if you remember the story in 2 Samuel, he dances around it with shouts of glory and he's, joy and he's clapping his hands. And it's really reminiscent of this. So as God came into his holy city the first time with David and, and shouts of joy and clapping, so too. God is someday, according to the psalm, going to come into a new holy city amidst shouts of joy and clapping, and he's going to ascend his throne. So there's beautiful images that are kind of going on in this. So we'll come back to that psalm in a second, though. I want to jump to the second reading, though, and there's a couple options for the second reading. I'm going to take the option from Hebrews because I think it's, uh, I just think it's really cool. Hebrews is an awesome reading this week. And it's this great passage from Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 9, which I think is the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews. It's the climax of the book. And it says this, Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the one of the true one, but heaven itself, that he might now appear before God on our behalf, not that he might offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the year, uh, enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that's not his own. If that were so, he would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. No, once for all, he appeared at the end of the ages to take away sins as a sacrifice. Um, And it kind of goes on from there. Uh, It says later on, if you jump down a couple lines, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since through the blood of Jesus we have confidence of entrance into the sanctuary, by the new and living way he opened for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a sincere heart and absolute trust, etc., etc. Hebrews is really interesting because what Hebrews is doing, if you have the eyes to see it, it's basically saying, look, there's two perspectives on this. There's two versions. Hebrews, by the way, seems to be, it's being written to, to Jewish, I think Jewish Christians, Hebrews, probably living in, in, around, in or around Jerusalem, you know, in the first century. And what's going on in and around Jerusalem in the first century? Well, all the Jewish people are preparing for battle, for war against the Roman armies that are going to come and have been occupying them. And if you remember the Gospels, Jesus told them pretty explicitly, when you see wars and rumors of wars, you are to run for the hills. You are to turn the other cheek. You are not to take up arms in this battle. Now imagine you are a a Jewish Christian living in Jerusalem. You now are a follower of Jesus, Yeshua. And you've heard him say that you're not to fight this war, that everyone around you, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, they're all getting ready to fight. Now, how do you think all of your countrymen, your kinspeople, your family are going to look at you when you say, no, I'm not going to fight the fight to defend the holy city? And they're going to think you're a coward. They're going to think you're, you're a baby. You're, you're abandoning your heritage. And so the book of Hebrews is written 
by its own uh, statement. It says it's a word of encouragement for these people who might be tempted to throw in the towel, who might be tempted to, to abandon the faith. And what Hebrews does is say, look, look at how much better this new high priest, this new covenant, this new system is than the old one. How can you go back? And it talks about Jesus as the perfect high priest. But here in chapter 9, what it's saying is this. If you look at the cross and if you go up to Calvary on Good Friday, what you have are two different perspectives. You could look from the ground and you could look up and you can see a man hanging on a cross in agony. Jesus, bloody. That's one perspective. But if you were in heaven and you were seeing this from a supernatural point of view, a divine point of view, you wouldn't just be seeing a man hanging on a cross in agony. That's true. But you would also be seeing Jesus as the perfect high priest in the high priestly robes, entering into the sanctuary, not with a sacrifice of of calves or goats or, or chickens or something like that, but with his very self walking in as high priest to offer himself in the Holy of Holies. There's another temple in heaven the, the temple on earth, the temple that was built by Solomon, is simply a shadow. It's simply a, a model of the temple that is in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem, the thing that Revelation has been talking about the last couple of weeks, this holy city. And that is where Jesus enters as high priest to redeem us. And if we look at it in that light, if we, if we see everything in that kind of context, then we need to see, you know, the ascension of our Lord, this is not kind of a weird add-on, which is always kind of how I looked at the ascension. Well, there was the crucifixion, there was the resurrection, and oh, cool, bonus, Jesus gets to fly up on the clouds too. Isn't that kind of neat? But that's not what the ascension is. It's fundamental to the act of salvation because salvation, the whole action of Jesus is not fully complete until after he makes the sacrifice, he ascends into heaven to go into that temple as high priest into the heavenly Jerusalem and be seated upon his throne. You know, uh, in, in ancient liturgies, the way that you knew the liturgy was complete, if you were to go to the temple ceremonies or something like that, the way that you knew the sacrifice was complete was when the high priest sat down on his seat. You know, that that's really why... If you ever go to Mass, you know, when when uh, everyone's kind of kneeling after communion, we're all sort of waiting, watching Father. As soon as Father sits down, everybody else kind of sits down as well. That's not just an act of courtesy. Oh, Father sat, so it's okay for us to sit too. We're able to sit down. Father sits down because that's a, sign, it's a visible sign that the sacrifice is now complete. And we are able to sit down, not just in deference to Father, but because we recognize, okay, it's complete. It's done. So we now sit. So the ascension of our Lord, when he goes up and he's seated at the throne, tells you, I mean, it's a fundamental next step. It means the whole thing has now been fundamentally and once and for all, as Hebrews says, completed. So it's kind of beautiful. But Hebrews gives you sort of the the supernatural point of view on all that and sort of what's going on here, which finally brings us to the gospel. And the gospel comes from Luke, which, remember, is volume one of what Acts of the Apostles is doing. And it's sort of the other, um, it's Jesus' prediction of what we saw in Acts of the Apostles. And it says this, Jesus said to to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, uh, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, You are witnesses of these things, and I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's sort of the recap of what we got in Acts of the Apostles. This is the last time in Jesus and Friends, right? So this is the story. Jesus appears to them after the resurrection. He says, you're going to preach my name to the ends of the earth, the whole world. You're going to be witnesses. But he says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. 
And then it says, as he led him out as far as Bethany, he raised his hands, blessed them. As he blessed them, he parted from them and he was taken up to heaven. They did him homage and they went back to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. Um, Acts of the Apostles builds on that. He, it tells us the same story, but it gives us a few more details. But here's, here's our last word, and this is what I want to say about the Gospel of Luke. If you read um, all the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic, coming from the Latin soon, uh, means the same, and optic, to see. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all written very similarly, and they, they sort of see things the same way. John is a bit different, but... Um, the Synoptic Gospels all sort of end the same way. In the, each of the Synoptic Gospels, you have the disciples being sent out, and they're all beginning to kind of make their way to the nations, except in Luke. It's only in Luke that Jesus appears to them. They're still within, you know, sort of eyesight of Jerusalem out in Bethany. And Jesus says, instead of going out to the ends of the earth, he says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait there. And I always thought the Gospel of Luke ends it ends strangely because it leaves you sort of wanting something. You, you, I always feel claustrophobic at the end of Luke because you're kind of locked back up in the temple. You know this gospel is supposed to go out to the ends of the earth, but Luke kind of traps you back in Jerusalem and you're sitting in the temple. Why? Well, it's the way that Luke has arranged things. Think about the structure of the gospel of Luke, even if you've never read it before. The gospel of Luke begins where? There's nobody here to answer this. The Gospel of Luke begins essentially in the temple with a guy named Zechariah. Remember the story of Zechariah in the temple? So the Gospel of Luke begins in Zechariah with the angel appearing to him and says, you're going to have John the Baptist. So it begins in the temple, and here we see it ends in the temple. Where does, uh, or ends in Jerusalem at least, where does Acts of the Apostles begin? Well, the Acts of the Apostles begins in Jerusalem as well, but where does it end? Well, if you've read Acts of the Apostles, it ends in Rome. So Luke begins in Jerusalem, ends in Jerusalem. Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. Why? Well, what the gospel is showing us is that Jesus has come among us, but he's come among the Jewish people specifically, the people that God had been growing and training and preparing to receive his word, to be able to go out to the nations. And the gospel ends sort of artificially because it knows there's a second volume. It knows that there's more to the story. The gospel of Luke doesn't end at the gospel of Luke because the gospel of Luke continues through Acts of the Apostles. And it knows that just as it started in the center, the, the, you know, the epicenter of all of Jewishness, of all of Israelite life, Jerusalem and the temple, it's going to end in the city of Rome, which is at that point, the epicenter of the entire world. It is the capital of, of the Roman empire, which is the most broad, vast, powerful empire on the earth. So in a certain sense, the gospel begins in the center of the Jewish world and it ends in the center of the world. And you see as the gospel goes out to Rome and eventually it will end, Acts of the Apostles ends in Rome, the gospel has already begun to make its way to the ends of the earth because that's precisely what Rome represents. And I think that's a really neat way to look at this. So I've been a little bit long-winded today when Father Peter's not here to shut me up. I, I just kind of go on and on. Um, but regardless, thanks for listening this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Father Peter will be back with us. We'll be lanky guys again, not just lanky guy. And... Um, yeah, we'll talk about the readings from Pentecost. So, hope you all have a great day. It's a rainy day in Boulder. Hopefully, it's sunny wherever you are. And thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.